experts calling China's sudden U-turn on virus policy a wild card for the globe. How will China's current COVID-19 outbreak play out on the global stage? Fever drugs out of stock in China. A U-turn in the country's COVID-19 policy catching drug makers off guard. Millions of people in China told to keep going to work even if they test positive for COVID-19. A federal appeals court rejecting a bid from a Chinese telecom giant. Relations between Australia and China appear to be warming. Their foreign ministers meeting today in Beijing. And is India preparing for a conflict with China? Anger boiling over in the country after a clash with China along a disputed border. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Is now the right time to declare the end of the COVID-19 pandemic's emergency phase? Several leading experts say no because of China. The world's second largest economy is seeing a spike in infections after dismantling its zero COVID-19 policy earlier this month. Projections have suggested China could face more than 2 million deaths. This as most countries have their major surges already behind them and have removed their COVID-19 restrictions. But Marian Kupmans, a virologist with the World Health Organization, is hesitating to call today's situation post-pandemic. That's when, quote, such a significant part of the world is actually just entering its second wave. She labeled the pending wave in China as a wild card. The Chinese Communist Party's sudden switch from one extreme to another contributed to those concerns. Weeks ago, authorities in some Chinese cities were still strictly confining people to their homes to stop the virus from spreading. Now, those blocks are dissolved. It appears to be an effort towards learning to live with the virus in low numbers, like many other countries are doing. But now, Chinese citizens with fever symptoms who go to hospitals find out that the hospital staff are of the same ailments. Those that can't get hospital treatment are turning to pharmacies to stock up on medicines. But nationwide shortages are leaving shelves empty. And outside funeral homes, hearses have been seen waiting in long lines. As the situation escalates, more and more factories are moving out of China. And foreign investors are waiting for the infection wave to pass. Those who believe the world economy can avoid the hardest of landings next year are watching China closely. Questions remain over whether China's loosening pandemic restrictions will help the economy in the long term or send it spiraling. COVID-19 is ripping through China, and millions are struggling to find treatment. Across many Chinese cities, pharmacies have sold out of fever and cold medicines. What's causing this chaos? Let's zoom in. Part of the reason is Beijing's sudden U-turn in virus policy, catching many drug makers off guard. They were unprepared for the current surge of demand. After receiving no notice about stockpiling drugs before the relaxation of COVID-19 rules. But even before the policy pivot, stockpiles of fever medicines have already been low in China. For nearly three years, Beijing strictly controlled cold medication sales. It aimed at preventing buyers from using over-the-counter drugs to reduce fevers and avoid detection. According to a Chinese drug manufacturer, pharmacies saw very low sales as a result, and many went bankrupt. Also contributing to the shortage is a lack of workers throughout the entire supply chain. Local drug makers say they're ramping up production, but many of their sales employees got infected with COVID-19. 
and logistics, blaming the lack of people for slow shipping rates of drug ingredients. As of now, local authorities have sent guards to drug factories to take over medicine stocks. China is a major exporter of an ingredient used for ibuprofen. It accounts one third of the global production capacity, meaning the shortage fever drugs there is sparking a global run on medicines. The impact is being seen in the U.S. and Canada over shortages in children's painkillers. In China, the situation has seen a six-month-old baby sickened with a fever of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, without medicine to help. Prices for kids ibuprofen have increased nearly 60-fold, from around five dollars to over 280. On Wednesday, Beijing said the country's medicine supply could quote generally meet demand. Beijing wants people in China to keep working, even if they are infected with the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Three Chinese cities in the eastern manufacturing province of Zhejiang all issued the directive to their more than 100 million residents, saying asymptomatic and mildly ill workers can quote go to work normally after taking protective measures. The push comes as China relaxes virus-related rules to limit economic impacts, but the public appears unsure. On Weibo, China's Twitter equivalent, local residents reacted to the news, describing it as one extreme to the other. Others responded with alarm, writing, "It sounds like placing money over life," noting many people have elderly relatives and children at home. And expressing fear that the new directive would only fuel virus spread. A federal appeals court is rejecting a request from China Telecom Corp. The company had challenged a federal communications commission order withdrawing the company's authority to provide services in the U.S. A three-judge panel denied the request to reverse the order. The challenge was submitted by the U.S. branch of the company. A lawyer representing it did not immediately comment. The FCC's chairwoman raised the ruling. She said, according to national security agencies, China Telecom's U.S. operations open the door to Chinese state-sponsored cyber activities. That's including quote economic espionage and the disruption and misrouting of U.S. communications traffic. In recent years, the FCC has raised concerns about Chinese telecom companies operating on U.S. soil. In 2021, the agency accused China Telecom of being "quote subject to exploitation, influence, and control by Beijing." The contested order took effect in January. China Telecom was authorized to provide U.S. services for 20 years. The company had over 335 million subscribers worldwide in 2019, and has serviced Chinese state-backed facilities in the U.S. Australia and China are trying to restore their relationship. Their foreign ministers met in Beijing on Wednesday, after the ties between them have undergone major turbulence in recent years. Here's how that meeting played out. Uh, we've continued to express the view that the comprehensive strategic partnership between Australia and China、uh, is architecture for dialogue and for engagement,、uh, which、uh, will benefit both countries. Penny Wong's visit comes on the anniversary of 50 years of diplomatic relations between the countries. Her meeting with her Chinese counterpart is the first visit by an Australian foreign minister to China in four years. Her trip has raised hopes of bringing an end to import blocks between them. 
She also discussed the two Australian citizens detained in China, journalist Cheng Lei and writer Yang Hengjun. Wong said she hoped to secure consular access for the two so they could be reunited with their families as soon as possible. The relationship between the two countries seemed to start warming up last month when Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and endorsed Beijing's One China policy toward Taiwan. That's Beijing's belief that Taiwan is part of mainland Chinese territory. Relations between the two countries took a downturn after previous Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an independent inquiry into the COVID-19 pandemic. China responded by imposing trade barriers and refusing high-level exchanges with Australia. Next, we turn to two nuclear-armed Asian states and a heated conflict. India's anger is boiling over after a border clash with China two weeks ago. If the Indian army calls us and gives us a chance, we are ready to fight on the front line at the border. After over a year of tense peace, Indian and Chinese troops clashed again along their disputed border in the Himalayan region. There, hundreds of Chinese soldiers have encroached on what India perceives as its side of the border and what Beijing claims as a part of Tibet. The two sides fought with sticks and clubs, not guns. What's more, a recent video has surfaced online showing what appears to be an unreported previous confrontation last January. Now India's in an uproar. The country's navy commissioned what it calls the most powerful indigenously built warship over the weekend. It's a stealth-guided missile destroyer. India is also speeding up tunnel construction in districts that share borders with China. That's on top of installing several mobile towers there and on military settlements. With the holiday season in full swing, festive greetings on Christmas cards with tidings of comfort and joy. But during the busy winter period, card manufacturers outsource some production to China, a country known for its forced labor camps. NTD's Malcolm Hudson spoke to a former journalist who was imprisoned in one of these camps to find out if there's a darker underbelly to the Christmas card industry. It's the festive season, and you're probably getting Christmas cards for your friends and family. While they're wishing you a Merry Christmas, if you look at the bottom just over here, it says they're made in China. But given China's extensive track record of human rights violation, it begs the question, who really made these cards? It's widely known that Chinese prisons use prison labor to manufacture goods. To learn more, I spoke to a former journalist and fraud investigator, Peter Humphrey. He spent two years in Chinese prisons from 2013 to 2015 on false charges and was subjected to forced labor. Manufacturing labor participation was partly optional for uh, foreign prisoners. It was not optional at all for Chinese prisoners. In all the Chinese cell blocks, they were making um, packaging components, such as you know tags that go on to various products, for example, um, and label labeling uh, holders and so forth. Things like that, quite simple. Humphrey said she has ordered prisons to toughen up on foreign prisoners. They are now forced to work just like Chinese prisoners. When he was there, Humphrey saw goods being made for companies like H&M, Disney, Zara and Logitech. This is commercial stuff where certain officers within the prison go out and win orders from a Chinese company. Um, the prison itself has a commercial entity. In other words, the, com the prison has its own company through which it transacts this business. Every prison has one. 
In 2019, a young girl in London opened up a pack of Christmas cards and found a message from an inmate at Chingpu Prison. It was addressed to Humphrey. He'd spent time with Chingpu Prison too. In the message it says, We are foreign prisoners in Shanghai Chingpu Prison, forced to work against our will. Please help us and notify human rights organisations. Use the link to contact Mr Peter Humphrey at ft.com. And when I saw this card, I, I, just, I really felt that I recognised the handwriting as one of the African prisoners who I knew. The little girl's Christmas card story helped to highlight China's forced labour problem. Humphrey said the Chinese prisons get work contracts from different Chinese companies, some of which already have a business relationship with Western companies. He said, And that's why a lot of um, companies that are manufacturing things in China um, are unable to drill right to the bottom of their supply chain through due diligence uh, processes to check whether or not any part of their supply chain involves prison labour. It's really difficult because of all the secrecy. You know, they, they can't get inside a Chinese prison to check. NTD reached out to various companies regarding their Christmas card supply chains. A Sainsbury's spokesperson said that many of their cards are made in the UK, that during busy times like Christmas they work with international partners, and that their suppliers meet high welfare and ethical standards. An M&S spokesperson gave a similar response, adding that they have zero tolerance of forced labour and that they do not accept any ingredients or raw materials sourced from Xinjiang. And a John Lewis partnership spokesperson said, all our suppliers are robustly audited to make sure workers are treated fairly. Other companies didn't respond in time for broadcast. So to summarise, Western companies contract Chinese companies to manufacture goods. These Chinese companies can then subcontract all or parts of the work to different Chinese companies. A few layers of subcontracting later, and forced labour may be part of the supply chain, all without the original Western companies even knowing about it. That's not to say every Made in China product is made with forced labour. Many will be made by legitimate businesses with normal employees. But given how hard it is to verify the source, it raises a serious question. How can we really know? Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Where was ground zero for the most significant strategic pivot since the end of the Cold War? Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, says it's the Middle East and that the shift happened very recently. We sat down with him to find out more. First, he touched on Chinese leader Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia and contrasts that with President Biden's reception in the country. Here's what he had to say. Biden made a point of attacking the Saudi government during his election campaign and subsequently uh, largely over the issue of the uh, murder of the uh, Saudi journalist, Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, but this carried over to a wide range of protests from the extreme left in the United States that Saudi Arabia was not a suitable beneficiary of U.S. military support and technology. Uh, and this caused uh, the Biden administration to literally isolate Saudi Arabia, perhaps in the belief that Saudi Arabia had nowhere else to go. And the reality was that Saudi Arabia always knew that it had somewhere else to go. It had seen the Egyptian example uh, of rejecting the United States when, when Washington had put on too much pressure 
on Cairo during the Obama administration. So essentially, uh, the, the Saudi crown prince in Riyadh uh, was hostile uh, to President Biden because of his insults of Saudi Arabia and, and himself personally. He was also angry at the Biden administration's attempt to overturn the Trump administration's success in achieving peace in the Middle East through uh, the Abraham Accords in the latter days of the Trump administration. And the Biden administration has continued to ignore uh, those uh, Abraham Accords and has literally attempted to uh, undermine anything which looked like uh, it was an achievement of the Trump administration. And that included uh, Israel's improved relationships with Saudi Arabia. Uh, so you have a situation where much of the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, was being, becoming alienated toward the US Biden administration. So when President Biden went to Saudi Arabia in July, he was received with you know, the cold shoulder. There were no ministers at the airport to meet him. There was nothing special about his reception. Now, the discussions centered around very, very minor uh, and ongoing details, whereas when uh, the uh, general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, arrived recently in, in uh, Riyadh, he was greeted uh, with all of the trimmings of a, of a full state visit, including flypasts of Royal Saudi Air Force fighter and trainer jet aircraft. The Chinese leader was given the, the highest honors altogether. Coming up, China's growing influence in the Middle East has changed more than just the map of power in the region. It's also caused deep impacts on the global stage. We take a closer look after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Why is the Middle East region so important to Beijing's global ambitions? And how is the U.S. strategizing to play the long game? We spoke to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for more details. With the closer friendliness, I guess you can say, between Saudi Arabia and China, what does that mean in terms of the geopolitical world and strategically especially? It is the most significant setback which the United States and the West has seen since uh, perhaps the middle of the Cold War period. This is profound. Uh, it, uh, uh, what we saw in the early 1970s was under President Nixon, the United States and the West achieved a, a great friendship with all of the states of the Middle East, including Israel and the Arab states and Iran. Uh, President Nixon at the time was able to balance uh, Saudi and Iranian competition in such a way that there, were, there was no real threat of mutual hostilities. There was a lot more positive growth and stability in the region. And basically what we saw under President Biden was that the absolute, and under President Obama in his term earlier, the destruction of that balance in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, the the objective of the People's Republic of China was to go in and say, we are a friend to all and we will guarantee peace in the region, which is something only the United States had been able to do in, in the past few decades. Already, uh, for some years now, we've seen Iran selling oil and, uh, to the uh, People's Republic of China. 
and being paid in yuan uh, and not in dollars. That freed the Iran PRC oil trade from US sanctions and embargoes because US dollars were not involved. Then Saudi Arabia has been toying with the idea of selling uh, oil and gas to the PRC in Yuan as well. Now, this visit didn't see a definitive agreement between the PRC and the kingdom on that matter, but we saw great progress. And clearly, it's in Saudi Arabia's interests too, if it's going to continue to sell oil and gas to the PRC, that it moves away from the dollar. Because Saudi Arabia itself doesn't want to become uh, the uh, subject of US sanctions because of its its uh, sales and dealings with, with Beijing. And we have to bear in mind that Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner is the People's Republic of China. It is not the United States. Now, in the meantime, we, we know that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is not moving to cut off its defense purchases and aviation purchases from the United States because it doesn't have suitable alternate suppliers. But it has slowed down its arms purchases from the United States. And it was very interesting to see that the, the fly past of jets uh, in honor of Xi Jinping when he arrived in Riyadh were four British aerospace Hawk fighters and fighter trainers and uh, some Eurofighters, again, made in, in the European Union and the United Kingdom. And there was not a, a sign of, of US technology in that, in that whole demonstration, except for one ironic touch, which was the fact that Xi Jinping arrived in a US-built Boeing 747. The, the deals which Xi Jinping has done, uh, have done in the, in the last few days and weeks in the Middle East is very important geopolitically because it also links uh, be the Beijing-dominated Eurasian bloc of states, a strategic alliance between Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia, and Iran in particular, it gives them the link now down through Saudi Arabia, down to Africa. And that's uh, the, the great linkage which Beijing wants. It had, in the last few years, been building uh, a, a client base in Africa and a supply base of African resources for the mainland China. But there was always this gap in the middle as to how to get uh, the uh, goods to Africa and, and raw materials from Africa up into the People's Republic of China. It was in the past being forced to sail them through the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea up to Chinese ports. That was a very risky proposition, given that uh, the Indian Navy, the Royal Australian Navy, and the United States Navy in particular, could intercept those shipments of goods to and from the PRC. So now, what we're seeing is the start of this overland linkage between the People's Republic of China and uh, through Central Asia to Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the like, down into the Middle East, down into uh, the African states, so that there is a land bridge, if you like, joining the whole Eurasian-African heartland together in such a way that it becomes less vulnerable to uh, interdiction by Western powers, whether it's the United States or the Europeans or the Japanese and Australians, for example. It does seem like the Chinese regime is really trying to grow that presence in the Middle East. And Gregory, any last words? Yes, I mean, what we're seeing with Xi Jinping is a caricature, if you like, of the old 
cartoon in the New Yorker magazine where you saw two businessmen tossing a coin and saying, heads we go global, tails we liquidate. It's really uh, a dramatic point of, of change for Beijing. Either they will make a dramatic breakthrough and the West will subside, or they will fail and collapse within the next decade. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you, Tiffany. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. But before you go, we have an announcement about our December 15th show. In that, we sat down with Brad Good, an American businessman, to hear about his firsthand experiences from China since 1988 and to talk about his project, the China Declaration, a global push to end the Chinese Communist Party. During that episode, an incorrect website was shown on screen. The correct website, where you can go to sign the declaration, is thechinadeclaration.com. We regret the error.